are now watching Music of Lifebloods Conversations from the Pit. Ladies and gentlemen, you have tuned yourself into another episode of Music the Lifebloods Conversations from the Pit. I am your very humble host, Dustin. Join with me, as always, Music the Lifebloods' own third man in the field, Mr. John Carter. Carter, how are things? Good. Great to be back. Yes, it's been a while. Mm -hmm. Damn, damn you, Skype. Anyway, problems are fixed. It's a new year. All kinds of new things to talk about. So I want to jump into this right away tonight. Uh, What I've been thinking about over the last two weeks leading up to starting uh, a new season of Conversations from the Pit. So this is what I've been listening to. Okay. Yeah. Some Jakey Lee. (laughs) Yes. Exactly, some Jakey e. Lee. So, I thought it was I thought it was high time that we at least addressed the the sort of uh, the Aussie thing, because I think as an entity, music the lifeblood appreciates Aussie, but when it comes right down to it, we would err in favor of Ronnie James Dio every time, uh, at least amongst the four of us, I guess, that make music the lifeblood go. So the question is to start the conversation. Where are you at with with Ozzy solo stuff? Ozzy solo stuff, yeah. I was actually talking to somebody recently about this because Jakey e. Lee has been in the news so much lately with the Red Dragon Cartel. Yeah, um, he's doing stuff. Yeah, and what's funny is they had like a hiccup at first when they tried a few years back, and then he disappeared again and then came back up. But uh, when it comes to the solo stuff with Ozzy, um, me uh, – me and my wife, like, we have this corny, corny-ass joke with the song Mama, I'm Coming Home. Like, when, when <laughs> her and I got together, I was on tour, and, uh, um, and like, we were just, you know, I, I want to say it was, like, uh, early internet days. And just as a stupid-ass joke, I put Mama, I'm Coming Home on the day we we're going home. And so, like, it's kind of been one of those things It's like, a inside joke slash kind of, like, lovey-dovey little thing between me and her. Yeah, it's got some some personal significance. Yeah, that album, I think, what, No More Tears that it's on or whatever? Um, Strong fucking record. Really fucking strong. Even though it's got, like, hits galore on it, um, it's a strong record. And my thing with Ozzy's solo stuff is really, I can't say hit or miss. It's kind of, it's spotty at best. Like, you know, um, I like Bark at the Moon better than Diary. You know, um, I have a love-hate for Ultimate Sin, um, Mm -hmm. you know, in in a lot of weird ways. No Rest for the Wicked is probably my favorite Ozzy solo album. Oh, no kidding. Okay. Yeah, I fucking love that one. It's so – It's. I mean, it's obviously – it's Zach Wilde's first introduction introduction to all of it. Is that – is lineup-wise, is that Zach, Randy, Castillo? Yes. And Geezer? Um, no, or who, who played bait? Was it Bob Daisley playing bass on it? Um, to be honest with you, I want to say, wasn't it like, uh, it was Bob Daisley. I got the freaking cassette right over there. Um, I honestly don't know. It was a dude that looked kind of like a cross between Blasco and Mike Inez. And <laughs> okay. You know what right. I mean? Like, but I mean, to be honest with you, I couldn't fucking tell you who played bass on that album. All um, right, so let's. I'll look it up. I'll look okay. it up while we're while we're while we're looking. 
Yeah. Or I, while we're talking, keep going. I wish it was Rudy Sarzo because I think I was stoked that he was that he, mm. that he was in Aussie for a minute. Um, but yeah, I mean, as far as like the Aussie stuff, you can tell. Um, you know, I remember like in the uh, late '80s, early '90s when he did the No No More Tours tour. It seemed like uh, um, you know everything like after No More Tears, like he had like Osmosis and uh, um, just like all the really really strong run from you know from uh, No More Tears on really. Um, and, uh, um, I, I'm, well, actually from the rest of the weekend, but like, no, I remember being in high school and like no more tears was kind of like, you know, late eighties, early nineties. And while all the grunge shit was going on, people were still digging on no more tears, you know? And, uh, you know, you, you turn on MTV and you'd see my mom coming home. You'd see no more tears, yeah. you know, and Mr. Tinker train, I think that was on there. Um, or shit. I, I kind of get um, that. Yeah, that. it is. It yeah, is. I keep right. I keep getting no more tears mixed up with osmosis. I think okay. osmosis has Perry Mason. Yes. Right. Well, that's no more great. tears had Mr. Tinker train and no more tears. Obviously, that's a great point, because if you think about no rest for the wicked, uh, no more tears and osmosis. It's a kind of a good three, like three in a row punch. You know yeah. what I mean? Yep. Yeah, so, exactly. Um, I like just, that just, just real quick, no rest for the wicked. Uh, Ozzy, Zach, Bob Daisley on bass, okay. which means Bob was probably writing all of the lyrics. And then Randy Castillo on drums and then John can, uh, Sinclair doing keyboards. Yeah. Um, John St. Clair, is that? No, I'm thinking of Ian Pace from Deep Purple. Um John St. Clair did a lot of people. He worked with a lot of people like in the late eighties, early nineties and the whole quote unquote hair metal, um, sort of glam metal era, you know? Um, so that's, that's really interesting to hear that he was on that too. Keyboards wise. No, no more tears is same lineup. Okay. See, and Bob so is- that, that just, just as a note, cause I remember looking at, uh, or not oh, no more tears. Is it? Yes, it is. No more tears. I keep, see, I keep getting it in osmosis mixed up, but anyway, I remember looking at the back of no more tears, the credits. And I remember they specifically mentioned that Mike Inez didn't perform. He didn't actually play on the album, but it okay. did say, but it did say something to the effect of bass inspiration. That's the word that keeps popping in my head. So I think from a tone standpoint, they said we want we want our bass to sound like the way Allison Chains does. Well, so do you think maybe he was like a ghostwriter, like he helped write bass lines or something? Or I, I don't I don't know. I think as bass players go, Bob Daisley's pretty fucking good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on top of that, too, he's an astoundingly amazing lyricist. If it just just listen to the 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 lyrics to to ultimate sin or, or I don't know, just any of the shit that's on ultimate sin. He, to me, he hit the high watermark with some of that stuff. Maybe, um, shot in the dark would be a really good example because mm-hmm. I think the lyric, the lyrics on shot in the dark, just, blah, it's, po- it's poetic, poetically perfect in my opinion. And I think me, me as a, as a listener, that's one of the things I get frustrated with the way that, Ozzy's career has been managed. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, that of the, the people that made Ozzy go and made Ozzy great. Don't always get the, the credit that they deserve. Hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah. 
True. It's one of it's one of the frustrating things about his career that you know the the whole debacle with uh, the the drums and bass being retracked for Blit was a Blizzard of Oz. I was going to mention that. Yeah. Blizzard think, Diary and Bark, I believe. I don't think it was Bark. Well, I think it was the the Randy Rhodes albums. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I, I, I think was... it was. I'm not, and I'm not even 100% sure who retracted it. Was it Mike Borden uh, from Faith No More and Rob Trujillo who wound up in Metallica? Um, I'm curious. I'm curious who they had do it, who they had do the studio work. It would make most sense if it was the two of them. Yeah. But, because Trujillo can jump in and uh, he he's like a very strong, he, he's like the, the world's probably. The, the world's best hired gun bassist. Oh, ever, sure. Yeah. You know, yeah. Down. Yeah. That's well, it's, I, I always, you know, he's had a bunch of really great people play for him over the years, obviously. Uh, duh. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? When, mm-hmm. when you're that, when you're, when you're that high profile of a, of a, a musician, you're going to attract really good players. But the, the thing that I always go back to, no matter what, I've been I've been listening to the Ultimate Sin the last couple of weeks a bunch because I think Jakey e. Lee, as far as Ozzy's guitarists go, to me he's top tier. He's he's absolutely top tier. I think he's just as just as as uh, capable as what Randy Rhodes and Zach Wilde are. But no one talks about him because the two albums he was on. Or at least the ultimate sin. A lot of people think of the ultimate sin as kind of the the quote unquote hair metal glam album, uh, and he he just kind of gets I think lost in the sort of shuffle of things because he's not nearly as high profile as Zach Wild is. Or did he Tom, do two or, albums? Did he do yeah, two albums? Yeah, yeah Bark, at the Moon, Bark at the Moon and the Ultimate Sin. So yep. that was Jake Lee on Bark at the Moon. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yep. it makes because I know that before that there was a whole revolving door of people that played with him live. And stuff. The guy from Night Ranger played with him live for a short period of time. And um, George Lynch, the only reason why he didn't get allegedly get picked to play with Ozzy yeah. was because he had a short mullet. He had like a, this, he had like a business haircut for his job. And, <laughs> and they wanted Jakey e. Lee because he had like long flowing hair and dressed cooler. Sure, and that's sure. that's what made this. I, I, I heard an interview with uh, um, with uh, <laughs> with uh, George Lynch recently and an interview um, with Jakey e. Lee. And they both kind of touched on that to to an extent. And I, you know, I because George ha, is, from what I understand, George had a couple opportunities to yeah. audition for Ozzy, and it just didn't it didn't work. And yeah. I think, you know, given given all of the mudslinging and the the shit show that Dokken would become at times, you know. Uh... <laughs> I could, you know, I'd be, if I was in his shoes, I'd be, I'd be a little sore about things because when it comes to George Lynch, I don't think enough people talk about him as far as capability and creativity Mm -hmm. as 80s guitar players go, because he's obviously a titan. He's absolutely a titan. You can listen to, listen to the, the solo on the hunter or, or it's not love. And I still, it's still astoundingly good in my opinion. Well, the thing about him is like, you know, his, his tone comes from his, his right hand attack. Just, you know, I've just noticed the way certain people play, you know, Dawkins songs or fucking around, you know what I'm saying? Like there's just certain things when I was a kid, when I heard people like Jakey e. Lee and, 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 uh, um, and George Lynch, they had like a certain way that they would like, you know, 
they would get certain pinch harmonics. They would like they would they would get certain crunch where they hold, held the pick and stuff like that. Sure, and sure. Then you have even people like Scott Ian who had like you know a sick right hand and everything, and like there's like even uh, uh, the guy from uh, from White Lion, like he's doing pinch harmonics on every single riff. And you got Gino? guys like him. Is it? Yeah, is yeah. Gino Gino Leonardo. Ooh, don't know. I know it's. I know he's <laughs> I Italian. I know that. I didn't traverse into the white lion universe very much at all, but, but just kind of like just growing up around um, our good buddy, Eric Tran, who was like a, uh, a a child prodigy um, guitar player when I was in high school. And he real, real, real real quick, everybody check out Eric's solo thing. It's called Transig T R A N Z I G. We had him on the, the music, the lifeblood podcast, a little, a little, I don't know. It was last year at some point. So mm-hmm. just heads up, go check out Transig. Yeah, he he showed me like kind of like when he would play, you know, um, riffs from different bands that we liked. Kind of, you know, and, and I, I would notice just different t- different technique, and I had no idea, you know. And it's very very um, personality driven. And the thing about Jakey Lee is, His, uh, sorry, Gino Leonardo, I think is one of the guys in Filter. Okay. <laughs> it's not it's it was the first name that popped in my head. He's uh I think he's one of the guitar players for Filter, but the guy from White Lion was Vito Brada. Vito Brada. I kept wanting to say well, it was Italian. It was it was still an Italian name. I, so. I was at least right in the, the same ethnicity sort of you're thing. You're not being culturally insensitive, so right. you're good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, anyway, anyway. But no, going. I mean the thing of it is like um Jakey Lee's been quoted recently saying that he's forever fucking with his tone, like trying to find the right tone. Sure. And, uh, you know, and, and people have said that it's all about like, it, it's it, the tone is in your hands. I mean, even, even people like, you know, um, Kurt, uh, Winstein or Weinstein or whatever Weinstein. from, from, yeah, from crowbar, like his tone comes from his hands. You know what I'm saying? And like, what was so great about Jakey e. Lee in Ozzy, he didn't try to ape Randy Rhodes he kind of brought his own shit in that people well, he, yeah he was jake jake is one of those jake is one of those la la guys mm-hmm. he had jake was playing in rat before yep. he was he was doing ozzy and it's it's interesting that to to think about the rat sound that or what would become the rat sound if if you can if if you could imagine overlaying Jakey e. Lee's playing style at the time, which we could probably approximate it at what he did on Bark at the Moon and uh, and the Ultimate Sin, that's probably what Jake sounded like mm-hmm. at the time that he was in Rat. So when you stand Jake beside Warren D. Martini from Rat, who by the way is hands down one of the most important lead guitar players to come out of the '80s, period. And yeah. no one talks about him enough. But when you stand Warren next to Jake, you can, yeah, it makes a shit ton of sense. Mm-hmm. It makes absolute sense, especially given that Rat was doing some really, really interesting stuff. Like there's there's some Drop D tune songs yeah. in, in Rat's catalog, which who the fuck was tuning to Drop D out of the hair metal scene? There just, no one was doing it. It was all E440, you mm-hmm. know, E standard tuning, that sort of thing. Those... Rat, as far as guitarists go, I would say Warren Martini. I'm not saying that Robin Crosby wasn't a unique guitar player or he wasn't good, but Warren Martini is, like, the, given the, the shit show that Rat has become, 
you know, I'd be a little bummed that Warren wasn't in my band anymore because he is part, he is the sort of definition of the rat guitar sound. Yeah. It's not, you're not going to be able to easily duplicate that. You can duplicate it, but it's not going to have the same emotion that Warren's playing would. Yeah. I yeah. think that, the, I think that their big um, early to mid 80s singles are just as important as like Twisted Sister stuff. Like, I want to rock. We're not going to take it. You mm. know what I mean? Like, cause I, when I was a kid, I discovered Twisted Sister and Rat at the same time, like, you know, the, the early to mid eighties. And what you're saying about Warren Martini is so true because he was the freaking the guitar, like the, the real meat of some of the biggest songs of the eighties. Yeah. You know, like yeah. you hear round and round, you know what I mean? Like that song right there. And you go to, you go to hockey games, you, you know, you hear rock radio, you're going to hear at least twice a day. You yeah. know what I mean? It's yep. like, it's right up yep. there with freaking, you know, Rocky, like a hurricane. You know what I mean? It's just like, and you know, no, I'm saying, yeah, but I just immediately wanted to start vomiting things about Matthias jabs. Oh, for like, sure. You know, no. yeah, yeah. Ah, ah, you know <laughs> any opportunity I get to talk about him. Cause he's, yeah. he's, he's leaps and bounds, leaps and bounds above Uli John Roth and 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 shanker and michael shanker he just stomps a fucking mud hole in the mm -hmm. both of them and i i will not relent on that matthias oh, right. ja matthias jabs is a far above and beyond the best guitar player the scorpions has ever had period well see and that also links into what we're talking about with uh warren Martini and jakey lee and stuff because there was a very competitive la scene like all these lead guitar players whether they were trying to publicly or not, but they were like, Hey, what's he doing over there? What's he, you know, what's that oh, yeah. thing he's yeah. doing, whatever. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's why you had George Lynch, Jakey Lee, Warren Martini, and Matthias Jabs kind of all pioneering, you know, collectively those, those were the voices of, you know, eighties rock guitar, at least from my perspective. I mean, yeah, yeah. They're, they're yeah, playing. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the tones that they made in the, in their big songs, are the soundtrack to my youth, you know? Yeah. And yeah, Matthias Jab's definitely right in there. Holy fuck, man. You know, <laughs> tease me, please me. You know what I'm saying? Rock, oh yeah, rock, just, just listen, just listen to yeah. Breakout. Oh yeah, dude, Breakout. Or black, I mean, not Breakout, Blackout, sorry, sorry. Just yeah, li well, listen to Blackout. Just listen to Blackout. Like Listen to it front to back, and you'll 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 get what I'm get what I'm saying. Just I've got that on vinyl, and I it sounds fucking phenomenal, dude. And it's just yeah, and so that's it's it's a great great tie-in, man. Because yes, Jakey Lee, Warren Martini, George Lynch, Matthias Jabs, those fucking guys. I mean, people try to throw people like Mick Mars in in that mix just because Motley Crue was so big at that time, you yeah. know. But no, I can't. You know, as much as I loved Motley Crue back then, he's in that group of you know the the powerhouse '80s quote unquote you know hard rock hair metal band sure, but I, sure, I don't think sure. i don't think he was you know i don't i don't think he was i think he was very meat and potatoes and those guys were fucking like flashing balls and I, well well i don't uh, i don't know if i don't agree with you a hundred percent okay um i think mick mars he wasn't as there, there's a there there, there's a yes, you're right. There's a sort of meat and potatoes element to what Mick is doing, uh -huh. as as when he functions as a rhythm, as playing rhythm. Um, but also at the same time, he's. I think Motley would have been better off with two guitar players, 
And sure. I think I think uh, just the same thing with Dawkin. But the the dynamic of having Don Dawkin play guitar live and George Lentz playing leads live, it just it wasn't uh, it didn't always work. You'd see Don whip out a guitar every now and then, but it wasn't yeah. anything super major. But I think Motley Crue would have been better off with a second guitar player that would allowed Mick to focus solely on one or the other. Yeah, especially in a live setting, because when you do listen to Motley Crue live, it's like, you know, on the on the the occasions that Eddie Van Halen would double track guitar mm -hmm. parts. I always think of Jamie's crying. OK. And then when they play it live, you're, you're missing significant parts of the harmony and the melody because Eddie's not two people. You know, right. as, as close as he can come to being two people sometimes with with a fretboard, he still he still couldn't do it. And it's the same thing with Motley, in my opinion, that Mick, as if if Mick was allowed to solely concentrate on being just a great lead player, I, I think you could have put him in with that strata of yeah. of guitar players like you and I were talking about. He's um, I, I always think of the Us Festival. Yes. Have you ever watched the? Uh -huh. It would have been when they were out promoting "Shout at the Devil." So, mm -hmm. Us Festival. What is that? 83? 83 yeah. or eighty four? I think. I think eighty three. Um, Motley plays plays at the Us Festival, and it's this huge thing. Van Halen headlined it, I believe, and that was the largest payout a band had received for a headlining show in the music industry to date. At that time, it was a bit. It was a really big deal. Um, but Motley played. And you can hear, you can hear everything bottom out when Mick goes for a lead. Yeah. J just the same as Pantera would, mm -hmm. when Dimebag would go for a solo, you'd lose some of the meat of the song. But I think in that sense, Pantera did it much, much better because I, I think the, just the dynamic between Vinnie Paul and Rex worked a bit better as just a sort of rhythm section than what Nikki six and Tommy Lee do, even though Tommy Lee is such a great drummer. He's a really, really good drummer. Yeah. But those, those that show specifically, I always think of it because Mick, Mick hits some clams. Like he misses. <laughs> there's, there's no other way to say it. Like I feel, bad, I feel bad about saying it. You know what I mean? Because he looks cool doing it, and those yeah. riffs are totally amazing. But he hits a couple clams here and there, and it just does not make for a sort of a, a well-rounded thing when it comes to Motley. See, I would have, I would have thought you would want Nikki on rhythm, and then just got a, just got a solid bass player. Yeah, because Nikki Nikki's the one writing the bulk of is he's the one writing the bulk of the songs. And you're not going to tell me Mickey or Nikki was going to sit around his apartment writing songs on bass. That's just yeah. it doesn't happen. He's no. probably a very capable guitar player. But eh, anyway, anyway. Well, no, I mean, and and here's here's kind of like a the the billion dollar the billion dollar Gene Simmons question. <laughs> like if Mark St. John hadn't gotten sick. Oh, you think, think he okay. would have been in that? You think he would have been in, no. that, in that ilk? No, no, okay. no, Absol absolutely not. Okay. No, no, <laughs> no. Bad Carter, bad you Carter. Can, can. <laughs> what is it? Uh, what was the name of Mark St. John Tiger? White was a white tiger, white, tiger. white yeah. tiger. Yeah, no, absolutely not. He's a musician, not an artist. Yeah, and an artist, an artist mixed with the right kind of musical talent can be something just amazing jaw-droppingly amazing and the thing that 
the reason you don't mention a guy like Mark St. John with, with those guys that we were talking about is because he did not play with any kind of soul, period. True. It's, it's utter. Uh, I've heard, I remember in a home video, Gene Simmons called like the sound of a bee buzzing. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that. It's just white noise. It doesn't, it, it's, not, it's not done tastefully. It's not done in the interest of enhancing the melody, the harmony, the rhythm of the song. It's just, no, absolutely not. There's a reason. Yeah, now, now, do you um, think, okay, and then I think, I mean, me, you know, you could probably agree with me on this. Bruce Kulick was my fucking childhood guitar player. Yep. Like, fucking, I, I love Ace. I absolutely, like, when it comes to my guitar playing, I fucking, you know, he's a huge influence on me, you know, big and bad, because I'm a sloppy, ham-fisted fuck anyway, so <laughs> it, I, I love Ace's playing. But, like, Bruce Kulick, I think with him, you know, like, they, they called him Bruce the Spruce, because he stood there like a tree mm. and just did his job, but he did his job fucking phenomenally well. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then, and then yeah, Bruce, the Bruce, it, as as far as far as just sheer playing ability, Bruce Bruce is up there. Yeah, and I, I would put him in the same league with a guy like Warren Demartini or Jakey e. Lee. Now, <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. It's funny because I just did. I just finished editing the the rock and roll over episode of Vinyl Thursday okay. the other day. And I did a like a, a brief little like standout tracks segment, and I I took a jab at Ace Freely because he's not Bruce Kulick. <laughs> well, <laughs> so he's not. And I will always always defend Bruce Kulick. That guy that guy is in that league of players: Matthias mm -hmm. Jabs, Warren D. Martini, Jakey e. Lee. But he's not he's not that sort of overt showman kind of guy. And because he was a replacement member, mm -hmm. or people associate him as a replacement member, he doesn't get the focus that you would think that he would get, even though, you know what I mean? Think of all yeah. the songs that he played on that sold just a shit ton of records. I fucking hated how up until, I mean, even on Hot in the Shade, people were calling him the new guy. Like the kids I knew, you know, it's like, oh yeah, that, that, that new guy, I can't remember his well, name, whatever. I mean... Yeah. I don't know. It's I. I, I just, yeah, I, yeah. Because I, mean, I mean, my my my. I had a hyper focus on Kiss through the the eighties and in, in into the early nineties, and so like you know, yeah, I was listening to to Guns and Roses and you know, and uh, Motley Crue and you know, and uh, Dawkins and shit like that, you know, along with Metallica and a lot of the great thrash, you know, of that time as well. Um, it just irritated me that people weren't like Bruce people like me and me and my friends were, you know what I'm saying? Well, I think and, it was, it was kind of in vogue to, to, to kind of not like kiss for a long time. Oh yeah. Because True. essentially, essentially, I mean, they burnt, they burnt the original fan base. Mm -hmm. And, and the unfortunate thing about that was that they didn't start picking up speed until 1984. Cause yeah, preachers, yeah. preachers as an album release did awful. Awful, yeah, yeah. absolutely awful. It was one the worst, if not one of the worst, uh, selling albums that they had released up to that point. Just absolutely god awful. They couldn't get arrested in 1983. Absolutely, and yeah. and the the idea of the the paint being seared into the brains of the 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 metal consuming masses stuck with them for another six or seven years before they were really able to pull out ahead.
Mm-hmm. You know, if you, if you think about it, obviously, you know, Bruce played on the Animalize tour, um, but he's, well, he is on the album. He's on two songs on the album. Um, and Mark St. John was on the cover of the album, though. Um, Bruce does the Animalize tour. Heavens on Fire did relatively well. Bruce isn't in the video. As- Asylum, Asylum comes out and Tears Are Falling does relatively well. Uh, Bruce is in the video, but not a lot. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> crazy, crazy nights comes out. He's on the album. He was on it. He was he was on Asylum too, and he co-wrote a bunch of stuff on Crazy Nights and Asylum. And Crazy Nights, he's in the videos, not a lot. Yeah, <laughs> you go all the way up through Hot in the Shade. He's on the album, wrote some of the songs in the videos, not a lot. You know what I mean? the The most exposure he got out of all that stuff was the the little twenty five thirty second long solo in the Tears Are Falling video. Yeah. And then the the acoustic solo on Forever from Hot in the Shade. You know, otherwise a lot of the time like when you watch when you watch footage of the band from around that time it's really interesting. There's a I think it's a Monsters of Rock. It would have been 1988, 87, 88. It was on the touring cycle for Crazy Nights and uh it's it's a pro shot show. There were video cameras there. They were recording it, probably shooting it out live on German TV, that sort of thing. And uh, the solo for Tears Are Falling starts, and they just show a shot of Paul Stanley dancing. <laughs> the the entire solo, and it's and it's that sort of thing. Like is the is the overriding characteristic throughout Bruce's time with Kiss. Yeah, it's just the fact that Paul and Gene were were still the ones who were known. There they were it was a left it was a holdover from the seventies, and it's all it's it's almost like in a popular sense. People don't, when you think of Kiss guitar players, yeah, everybody thinks of Ace Freely. So, so from that point on, you just have Ace Freely and people who are not Ace Freely yeah. in a, in a, in a popular sense. And that's that's a dead that's a damn shame to me. You know, I did that Crazy Nights episode of Vinyl Thursday a while back, and I I mean I talked about Bruce a bunch, a bunch in that episode because I don't think he gets the play that he deserves, but realistically why is he not talked about in the same breath as guys like jakey lee and warren Martini and 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 don or george lynch and all those guys and he there's a party or two i don't know if that you know i don't know it wasn't you know i mean, I mean he was in a party band that didn't party but were all about the party they wanted some party well i don't i don't necessarily think it was about being all about the party it was just being all about sex yeah as, I mean, he that, wasn't a very sexy guy. <laughs> it, not to you, know, do, you know, not that I mean, Bruce isn't an ugly guy. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sure that I'm sure there were girls wanting to meet him. But, oh, of course. You had but, a guitar and your hair was gigantic. So, you, yeah. You, yeah. But at the same time, you're not Ace Freely. And that's yeah. what every the a big chunk of the music consuming masses are thinking. And it's a bummer. It's, it's okay. an absolute bummer. So in the parallel universes of let's say like Kiss with Bruce and then Ozzy with Jake, right. um, was that simultaneous, or um, was when 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 Bruce kind of became like a a real full timer in Kiss? Um, right. Well, Ozzy, because, when was, because at one point when, in time you had you had Kiss from the seventies and then you know who were like quote unquote they were the dinosaur band that was getting doing modern shit and you had Ozzy who was the dinosaur that was 
doing some modern shit and getting props and you know in the in the mid eighties. You know what I'm saying? And then you had Alice Cooper pop up with trash. You know what I mean? And so you had like these bands from like the seventies that were slugging it out in the whole eighties hard rock scene, right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. you know, and then and Alice Cooper had that fucking giant like weightlifter dude that played guitar. Oh Rambo, um, the, yeah. the Rambo guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so it was kind of like a lot of these guys, you know, they all tried to get like a shredder of some sort, you know, while they were trying to like, Hey, remember us from 20 years ago or 10 years ago. And then they was like, but here, here's this fucking young shredder. That's going to melt your face while we do well, you know, it's like the older people came to come to see Ozzy and Gene and Paul and, you know, and, and Alice Cooper. And then they want to bring in the young kids with like the shredding guitar. That sure. was what I, what I thought when I was younger. You know what I mean? It kind of seemed like that to me. Because I knew of Alice Cooper from Walking Around Nightmare, Ozzy from Sabbath, and Kiss. Yeah, from Kiss yeah. You know. Well, it allowed them. It allowed those bands to transition into mm -hmm. a a rapidly changing musical landscape. Sure. And and it allowed it allowed them to be able to compete at a contemporary level. Yeah. And that's that. I mean, that's important. It's it's like the difference between, you know, unarticulated knowledge and articulated knowledge. The idea that bands that all of those bands transitioning into the 80s knew but couldn't put their finger that on um, whatever was wrong something's right. wrong you know mm -hmm. you know ann and nancy wilson looked up at one point and went uh we're okay something's wrong you know oh, what man. i mean well, <laughs> and I so about them it, being thrown in the into the mishmash yeah and we've and you know on conversations from the pit we've talked about that sort of transition at a mainstream level before we i mean we've talked specifically about heart mm -hmm. the, the idea that that um that things were changing in, in such a way that those bands those holdover bands those leftover bands from the 70s had to be able to they had to make do something different they yeah. had to or they weren't going to make it and you can see the same thing happen with all of those hair bands once they hit the early 90s <laughs> you know, Fuck, that's true De De Def Leppard put out an album called Slang mm -hmm. you, know, you know what I mean the the short the weird shit that they were doing for a minute you know what I mean and if you put that album next to next to 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 Hysteria yeah what? You know what I mean? It's it's mm -hmm. jarring. It's it's extremely jarring. You can see bands try to cross the divide, so to speak, and fail at it, fall flat on their flat on their face because it's awful. Metallica did it. Do you think that it, that the bands that transitioned from the '70s to the '80s did it or had better luck than the bands that transitioned from the '80s to the '90s? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes, because the the emphasis was still on the 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 mystique and the sort of godlike status and level de deity status mm -hmm. that we were putting rock stars at at that time the interesting thing about the transition from the 70s to the 80s was that in 1984 led zeppelin was still revered and relevant to the to to it to it influencing music at that time Mm -hmm. You can't you can't say the same thing about Def Leppard to the early '90s. No, Corrosion of Conformity aren't going to say, "Yeah, Hysterity is a fucking badass album." Yeah. Sound, Soundgarden's not going to talk about the virtue of of how good Cinderella is. They're not going to do it. 
So so the 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 shift that happens because we don't we stop looking at rock stars and the the sort of excess that comes along with what you would stereotypically think of the 70s and 80s era of rock music at a at a at a cultural level especially at a young people cultural level that the generation x people that were coming of age around that time they didn't necessarily think you know fucking a thousand girls on tour was the coolest thing in the world yeah they 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 viewed being deep and having a, a message and telling you to go out and vote and be politically active and and support support you know you know this sort of radical cultural change that was happening and that was more important well yeah and they it's, had that. It's, it's it's a shift it's it's a shift that i mean you can pinpoint it you mm-hmm. can absolutely pinpoint the moment that it happened that's crazy because like you and i both you know and we're not the exact same age but we were um we were able to observe it when it happened we were able to, yes. to know what's yeah. going on yeah we were you know, of I mean, age yeah over yeah. fucking night we were just kind of like this is happening now i mean i remember being at a friend's house and seeing the video for smells like teen spirit come on and i'm like (laughs) and what was crazy was this was a friend of mine who got me into a lot of really got me into the misfits got me into the jesus lizard sure got me into like a a lot of fucking just you know what we called you know skateboarder music shit that's just okay skaters listen to whatever because we were skaters you know we fucking loved metal but we liked shit that was extreme and weird whatever and he showed me the video for smells like teen spirit i mean he didn't show it to me it was on tv and happened to be at his house so I was kind of equated this guy, this is the dude that showed me this. And I remember kind of feeling that paradigm shift when it happened because I was into Danzig and, you know, but I saw Danzig on Headbangers Ball, right? You know, and I was into, you know, and I liked some of these bands that were kind of like early 90s, kind of like pre-grunge, but kind of like more avant-garde metal that were starting sure. to, you know, like Warrior Soul, yep. you know, and uh, um, even Jane's Addiction and stuff like that kind of starting to happen where you're like, okay, these guys are long hairs playing heavy stuff, you know, but we, but it was all kind of happening. But then like when you see Nirvana on TV, you're like, you're seeing a whole culture represented in that video. You got kids sitting in the bleachers with bad brain shirts on and, yep. and flannels and mohawks and dreadlocks and black flag shirts and just kind of like, the type of kids you'd see at a show on were on fucking TV. And you're like, whoa, this is like, I've never, I never thought that I'd be able to see, you know, the, 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 the crowd that is an all ages fucking, you know, punk slash hardcore slash whatever kind of like avant-garde metal show that I started going to at that time on TV. You know, I was already yeah. kind of aware of it, but yeah. like, you know, there was like, there was what was going on, on the surface, mainstream, boom, boom, boom. You had, you know, uh, fucking, you know, Kiss had Re- Kiss had Revenge. You know, Extreme had Pornography. You know what I mean? Like these albums were out, but then under the surface, you had fucking, you know, you had, you had Danzig and Caius and Crozier Conformity and Mud Honey and all this stuff. It was kind of part of the same culture, but yet it wasn't like from my small town kid perspective. I liked all of that shit equally because oh, it's loud guitars yeah. and yeah. fucking gnarly looking dudes. Yeah. The, the, the shift, the, the cultural shift, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I I think, I think in my opinion, the cultural shift had a lot to do with AIDS, you know, people, people, the, the AIDS epidemic, you know, the fact that, you know, I mean, everybody that knows me personally knows that I got a mean conservative streak, 
you know, <laughs> you know, the, the, the music, the music, the lifeblood chat occasionally will flare up, you know, with Jake and I blah, blah, batting back and forth and stuff like that. So it's, 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 everybody knows that that's kind of, I, if I was going to tilt one way or the other right now, where I'm at in my life, I would probably tilt a little bit conservative, but I always say I'm a, I'm a libertarian. Just leave me alone. That's my thing. But the, the, the conversation that was happening out in a, in a popular sense around that time, especially around the AIDS epidemic, it, it, the, a lot of that conversation was the frustration, the fact that it was not being addressed in a sort of mainstream uh, establishment sort of way. You know, the Reagan administration wasn't addressing what was going on with the AIDS epidemic. Mm-hmm. You know, the Nancy Reagan wasn't doing like AIDS, HIV fundraisers and stuff like that. It just wasn't oh, yeah. happening. And I think that in and of itself, the AIDS epidemic caused a, uh, a sort of hyper focus to happen on, on the, the, the sexual activity at a cultural level. Of, mm-hmm. of, of young people. And I think young, young people shifted in a way that their priorities changed. It was, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a good idea anymore to go to a party and want, you know, to, 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 to get it on and have like a one night stand with four or five chicks at, at a kegger or something like that. That's not yeah. what it was about. It became, you know, the almost kind of, uh, tantamount, the equivalent, it ran sort of uh, par- similar parallels with each other, the 60s sort of hippie movement that you became much more fixated on sort of bigger picture stuff. And it wasn't the, the, an extension of a, a sort of sociological mode of being where you are the center, where, where instant gratification or now is, is what is most important. You know, it's it's the idea that as you develop as a person, one of the most one of the most important things about how everyone's personality develops is is your ability to bargain, to to sort of barter and and trade with the future. Right. You're you're you you can go okay if I go to college, this short term it's going to suck because I got to study a lot and I'll probably have to work a couple jobs to, to be able to pay for school and I got to go to class and get stuff turned in and that sort of thing. But it's a long-term payoff because eventually that work at the end of it pays off and you get, you know, you get a better job, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. the, 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 the idea that we had young people at that time, that generation X group that were, that were going, you know, it may not be a good idea to do all this cocaine. <laughs> and the art as music especially popular music began to reflect that and all of a sudden we have people that write really good music that were openly on heroin you know what i mean and and mm-hmm. discussing the dangers of heroin and how how that sort of affected the the way that we view what was going on with him as artistic entities. Like I think of Al Jurgensen, the idea that Al was openly uh, like, I do heroin. I'm an addict. You know what I mean? He, he would talk about it and that the, the idea became that, well, if they're doing heroin, they're potentially putting themselves at risk of AIDS because sh- needles carry mm-hmm. AIDS in the popular understanding of the disease that they're willing to potentially die for their art. And that's considerably more deep than 
lay it down yeah. by rap, you know, by, by rat. And mm. the, and then just everything shifted in a way. And then you have the introduction of gangster rap that happened, you know, uh, just pro progressively more and more sort of violent hip hop. And, and the, I, the idea that in the hip hop world, things are going really bad. In the, yeah. in the black community, we're having all these issues with police brutality out in Los Angeles. Crack is an issue, all that kind of stuff. It changed the way the, the changed the way we put an emphasis and assigned a certain kind of sociological and ethical value to the music young people were consuming at that point. And that's why when you have someone like Kurt Cobain or Courtney Love gives an interview in Vanity Fair and says that, yeah, I'm a, I do a bunch of drugs and I'm, I'm pregnant. I'm going to have a baby. You know what I mean? That's yeah. going to cause a switch is going to flip at that point. And it's going to cause young people to look at those people that are creating art in a very, very different way. Yeah, I mean, and what you were saying about with hip hop too, you had like the angry um, gangster rap stuff, and then you had socially conscious stuff like Arrested Development and uh, Tribe Called Quest and De La Soul, uh, yeah. Diggable you know, Planets. And, yeah, and yeah, Diggable Planets, and you had even like um, Erica Badu was kind of bubbling up underneath there, and and people like Common, and there was like there was sort of like the the hip hop that I was into in the early '90s was kind of like that East Coast, you know, sort of like very jazz influenced, you know, more positive. There's, there's so much of a, you know, a positive message. And I never really, I never really clicked with the gangster rap stuff at all. Really. I never, sure. you sure. know, I mean, in, I mean, after a while, you know, I mean, I, I got into like Wu-Tang was kind of like my gateway to uh, NWA and all that kind of stuff, because that was kind of like the, you know, it, it's kind of where like Tribe Called Quest slowly turned into nwa you know what i mean and then it kind of like you know it's a transitionary but like early 90s too uh there was like this this need to be more socially conscious yeah um yeah. not so yeah. much in a yeah. fascist sort of social uh you know social um kind of like uh what do you want to call it responsibility way like nowadays where it's just kind of like you know um more of a gun to the head approach but it was more like more kind of like a you know, check this out. Here's an all, another way of, of looking at things, sure, another, sure. you know, well, and, the, the, the emphasis, the emphasis was on starting a conversation mm -hmm. you know, no, for, yeah, that, for lack of a better term, uh, to, to be able to start a conversation that was about, uh, societal change, a sort of mm -hmm. foundational paradigm shift. Sure. For, sure. Yeah, yeah. For lack of a better term. Which and I think it's, that, it's that different. It's different versus now, because I think that, you know, if we go a little way, a little more ways down this line of thought, eventually we get to the Antifa trying to stop black metal tours and 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 stuff like that. The the sort of social justice warrior ethos is drastically different mm -hmm. than than what the the sort of game plan and and functional the the sort of the functional way of doing things that 90s liberals had yeah it was, oh, more it less was... like one person the change starts within you know what i mean the whole like sure. change yeah. starts within. Yeah. Yeah. that's what that's what i you know what was being bandied about you know in in the late 80s early 90s but that was like you know one person deciding to change themselves and now it's kind of like you're going to change no matter what because we say so, and you're going to do it in you know in a mass group. <laughs> you're going to do it now. 
Well, yeah, what, there's, you know, yeah, yeah. I heard, you know, I, I don't know if we want to get off into that conversation. No, we can, we, I mean, we, we could probably another episode, but be moderate. We'll the, be moderate yeah, about it. Yeah. The, the idea, the idea that you're going to use, you know, I hear people that bristle at the, the, the sort of social justice warrior culture that, and I do too. I, I do not know. I do not like it. I do not like it at all, but I hear people call it fascist. The, their means of the, you know, the, the fact that they're smashing, you know, storefronts and throwing garbage cans at people at Trump rallies and things like that. People, I hear people, um, people on the other end of the spectrum, a lot of the time call it fascist. They're using fascists. They're, they're using fascist ways of doing things to try and encourage anti-fascism. Um, I don't, I don't like the idea of calling it fascist. I think it's authoritarian for sure. Mm -hmm. And you can have authoritarian elements in fascism, but I don't know that I would label it as a uh, fascism. To me, I associate it with a political sort of um, apparatus. It's more like a, a like a totalitarian dictatorship. Than, <laughs> yeah, a little bit. You know? Yeah, totalitarian, then, then... authoritarian way of I, – I tend to lean towards PC authoritarianism. That's that's a term that I feel like kind of fits it you know, really well. But that's, I mean, completely well, different conversation. On that, well, yeah. think about it this way as, as kind of like a good segue, not forced, but <laughs> natural segue. When Ozzy came back out, right, when, mm -hmm. you know, when, when, when Sharon started dragging him back up on the stage and he was <laughs> – you know, like after after Randy Rhodes died, you know what right. I mean? Like it was rough on him. The 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 the, the social climate then um, was evolving rapidly in the early 80s. Fucking. Oh, you, yeah, for sure. You, you think now it's fucking, you know, it's but it was evolving rapidly because you had like the death of disco, you know, the um, the birth and death of punk. And then you had, you know, the cocaine era, then, then, you know, then like the, the yuppie era and the boom, it was like shit, you know, computers came and, and then entertainment was right there the whole time trying to do its thing. And then like, you know, you saw more glitz and glamor, you know, um, because it was, it was kind of a reflection of what was going on. It was, it was either a reflection of, or it was like, uh, and an answer to what was sure. what was going on, sure. you know. Well, you no, know. all all of the eighties, all of the eighties was essentially a a a uh, a wind down from the seventies and a ramp up towards what would go on in the nineties. Mm -hmm. You know, it's this sort of transitionary decade. Yeah. Um, and from an artistic standpoint, you can see it reflected in music because you have, you know, think of everything that happened in the eighties. You know, the 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 roots for black metal occurred, the mm -hmm. roots, the roots of death metal occur, the 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 roots of skater of West Coast skater punk occur, the fine, the the fine tuning process of what would eventually be called hardcore starts happening. Uh, or at least modern day hardcore, we start sure. moving, we start moving in that direction, that sort of thing. So it's a it's a it's it's a decade of of just. Oh, like this sweeping sort of monolithic mountain moving kind of change, especially in the artistic, the, the music community. And you can see it reflected at, look at all the shit that, that hit number one, just the variety of shit that hit number one on the, the billboard 100 throughout the eighties. It was yeah. a really fucking weird decade. You have Paula Abdul right next to guns and roses. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, know? exactly. Ex- exactly. And eventually you throw NWA in there. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's, it's just, it's bizarre. It's a bizarre time. I think, I think though, the, you know, yeah, kind of like moving in the direction of moving it back to where we started the 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 ultimate sin Jakey e. Lee era of the band. The, the neat thing about that is that obviously it's a cool snapshot in time because I don't I don't know that we're going to have the stars align again to be able to create the the sort of sociological zenith the the point at which hair metal and and 80s metal became possible and revered. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely revered in a popular sense to to be able to duplicate that again. You know what well, I mean? Yeah. Cause, How, cause how's when, that going to happen? When when I was 10 years old, um, seeing the video for uh, for Shot in the Dark, right? Like I was freaked out. You know, the the girl that for some reason became a zombie, you know, well, it's, and, the chi- it's the chick on the front of the album. Yeah. Right? yeah. Then she she becomes the chick on on the cover more or less in the video, right? I had some I was I had someone say to me a while back that her butt was really nice. Oh, it is! It's fantastic. <laughs> she, she looks like she does a lot of squats. I mean, that's like that's like for real. That's the kind of butt that girls are trying to go for, you know, at the gym and uh, God bless them for it. But uh, it appe- it appears to be a white girl butt, so that makes it even more impressive, right? Hey, well, I mean, it is what it is. Yeah, I mean, the fact that I'm I'm such a big fan of. But black you girl, don't know. Butts, right? You don't know, Dustin, because <laughs> that girl, she could be Brazilian. That could be a, <laughs> oh, okay, right, right, right. Look right. at that, though, you know. But no, I remember seeing the video and noticing shit. Ozzy's wearing a a glitter. glittery, you know. Yeah. yeah, he's got giant hair. He's wearing fucking glitter, and then Jakey Lee, you couldn't see his face because his big hair. That was the honestly, Shot in the Dark was the first video where I kind of noticed the quote unquote big hair thing happening. Really? I mean, in, I mean, it, it been happening, but like, that's when it really hit home for me. Cause I'm going, this is not the bark at the moon, Ozzy, where he's just, you know, dressed like a mad scientist and stuff like that. Cause sure. I would, I'd see that, you know, and see like the videos before that. And cause Ozzy had like the shorter hair and stuff and kind of looked almost sort of like a Benny Hill kind of, you know, a young Benny Hill, you <laughs> know what I mean? And some of those earlier, you know, diary and, and, the, you know, and the whatever, but like was that was when boom because like I think I was like I was in uh, sixth or seventh grade or fifth or sixth grade when that video came out and I'm like this is this is this is some shit right here and then still the night by fucking you know White Snake came out and all the guys had fucking Aussie hair in that video you know and I just noticed all this fucking the big hair thing really happening sure you know sure. with with those two videos and to me like and then I noticed my older sister she was getting into that stuff and hanging out with these gnarly guys with like Iron Maiden shirts and, you know, and, and stuff like, you know, and jean jackets with fucking Metallica written on it and stuff. And where I was just kind of like, Whoa, you know, I went from like, you know, Mike, you know, Michael Jackson, the fat boys, weird Al Yankovic, you know what I mean? And like that stuff on my radar. And then I was just like, what's this, this crazy shit. And then I noticed, you know, I mean, a very young age, you know I mean? And then, and then poison happened. Like, Holy fuck. That was like the trifecta. You had like, you know, Ultimate Centaur, Ozzy, White Snake, and and Poison. It's like boom, boom, boom. That's when I knew some shit was happening. Yeah. You know, not yeah. to mention the video for Welcome to the Jungle. The one time Axel's hair was teased out. You know, so it was just kind of like fucking like shot in the dark video was was to me one of the signs of that paradigm shift for me. And we were talking about the Nirvana thing earlier, but like to me, when I noticed as a kid, this is a thing. This is a phenomenon. You know, and like 10 years down the road, they'd call it hair metal. But like 
this is the rock and roll of now. This is a thing. All these dudes with giant hair and glitter, you know, and just, you know, just noticing it everywhere I went, you know, and then I was, you know, I was fucking hooked. I wanted to know what the fuck was going on. And then I found the music and I'm like, oh shit, this music is like really good. It's like, you know what I mean? And then, oh shit, Kiss is part of this stuff too. Cause I was, yeah, you know, yeah, when I was little, yeah. you know, I, I quit it. So it was just like, but yeah, the shot in the dark video, I saw it like on night flight or whatever, you know, on, uh, um, on TBS or whatever, you know, it was pre headbangers ball. I had MTV at the time, but it was just kind of like, damn, this is, you know, the, the dude from black Sabbath in glitter and big hair, yeah. you know, this something, is a new I thing. mean, it's, it's something different. Mm -hmm. And the, the the when it comes to the '80s, as far as that music scene goes, the the shift from '85 to '86 is when stuff really happened. Sure, you know, there's a bunch of important things happen. The difference between "Shot at the Devil" and "Theater of Pain," mm -hmm. or the the difference between "Out of the Cellar" and "Invasion of Your Privacy." Yeah. You know, yeah. the, the, those, the, a big old shift happened or py or pyromania to, to hysteria. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Hysteria came out later than 86, but I mean, still it was happening. You know, that stuff was really going on and it was moving quickly. The, the sort of ramp up. That's why I think that first wave of that first and second wave of eighties metal, I like, and I tend to find it to be a bit more, a little more credible than what the third wave was. Cause yeah. the third wave you got like, trickster and firehouse and the just a Definitely bunch of was really holding on i mean that Nel nelson came out and just because they had long hair and then oh they yeah i forgot about rock that. on drums yeah. from Vincent invasion they yeah. were like part of the the hair metal scene even though there was not, i mean you know then you have bands like like danger danger you know and <laughs> yeah, bands yeah. That, were, that were essentially yeah. just kind of like you know like boy pop bands that play guitar that all their songs were geared towards, you know, 16 year old girls. Well, it, get, it gets to that. I mean, it happens every time. Uh, well, it doesn't necessarily happen as much anymore. I don't think because the, the, the music industry, the, the, just the landscape has completely been rearranged because of file sharing, but mm -hmm. for over and over and over and over again, something, something was underground and then it scoots to the cutting edge and then it scoots to uh, overexposure. Yes. And then you immediately jump to the thing that's underground. Yeah. It, and I think you can like, see you can see it happen to the 70s, 80s and 90s. You can see it happen time and time again. So, yeah, what you said with about like uh, best example, what you said was, um, you know, pyromania to hysteria, mm -hmm. you know, which like. It was like, okay, this is the hot shit. So on your next album, you're going to work with this producer because this producer, you know, he he worked with these top 40 people. And so we're going to put him on your shit. Sure, like sure. when Bon Jovi, um, who is that guy that um, that Bon Jovi worked with and then Kiss worked with the same guy on Crazy Nights? Is it Ron Nevison? Yes, Ron Nevison. Yeah, because he, he... Did he, he do was, Did he do Slippery When Wet? Mm-hmm. Did he? Yeah. Did he? Yeah, that, that was, I mean... Unless I heard something incorrect, but I remember that there was uh, one of the big, big things that pushed Kiss to want to do um, Crazy Nights the way it was was because of Slippery When Wet, and I want to say Ron Nevison was involved with that. Okay, but with I know the, I know he worked. He did some stuff with Heart too, obviously. Yeah, well, and and you know, and the thing of it is, before I heard Crazy Nights, I heard Slippery oh no, it was, it was Bruce Fairborn. Was it really Bruce Fairborn? Yeah. Are you sure Ron Nevison had nothing to do with with Crazy Nights or Slippery When Wet? 
Well, Bruce Fairborn did Slippery When Wet. Uh-huh. And Crazy Nights is... Let me. I should know this. Well, yeah. I want to say I, now. I'm I'm doubt, I'm doubting myself now. Now I want to say when History Science Theater, like a, a couple of years ago, they discussed. I want to say the the Ron Nevison kiss and uh, Bond. Yeah, Jeremy Ron. Kiss. Yeah, it's Ron Nevison on Crazy Nights. Okay, so who was the? Because there was somebody that was big, that that um before Kiss kind of did Crazy Nights. Somebody that they wanted to work with Ron Nevison because of somebody. Yeah, it was, uh, it was it was Ron Nevison. He's done. I mean, he's done a bunch of stuff. He worked with um, Ozzy, mm-hmm. um, then Lizzie. I think Europe. He did Heart by that point. Right. right. He was he was kind of like a hit maker. Sure. Okay. Um, and I mean, Ultimate Sin. We'll see if it's. We'll see. Let me look real quick. Yeah, Ron Nevison. Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The, I, I just, I mean, it, it's one of those, probably those revisionist history stories you you hear about, like, you know, well, Bruce, Bruce did, I think psycho circus by kiss. Yes, he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and God, yeah, he, uh, he also, I want to say he, he also did, uh, he worked with slipknot too briefly on some shit. Really? Okay. Yeah. I didn't um, know that. Mm-hmm. I, you know, people are probably fucking going to be screaming at their phones right now, but it's whatever. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not gonna, um, just, I, that did not come out of my mouth. Okay. Well, I heard a recent <laughs> interview with Corey Taylor and I swear to God, he said something about Bruce Fairbairn. I'm sitting there, Oh, that's the guy that worked on Psycho Circus. But anyway, but no, I mean, all in all, man, like, you know, when it comes down to it, man, with you it kind of bringing up ultimate sin and kind of what we, what we kind of got, got talking about, um, that it's everything from shredder guitar players being in the mainstream. You know, to music going from like hard to, you know, hard to soft, you know, in the mainstream as far as like hard rock goes and stuff like that. And then all the way to like the paradigm shift of, you know, of, of say, um, you know, Guns N' Roses to Nirvana. You know what I mean? Like, I think that like uh, Ultimate Sin is a very, very fucking important album in a lot of ways because, um, you know, it was the second one with Jakey e. Lee and people, even though you know, there was an album in between Ultimate Sin and the last one with Randy Rhodes. People were still thinking, okay, Jakey e. Lee is, you know, the Randy Rhodes replacement. And there's like, just the way things work pre-internet. You know what I'm sure. saying? Like something sure. could be out for two years, but people just hear about it like right now. And then, oh, it's, you know, the new album, you know, but it's two years old kind of deal, you know. But uh, um, but yeah, I really, really think in the, in the landscape of metal and hard rock, um, Ultimate Sin is very, very important. If you don't, even if you don't like that style, I think it's a, it's a good album to really sort of like kind of like listen to and kind of study to kind of get a taste and a picture of where things were at at that time. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, snapshot in it, time. It's a complete sort of snapshot. Time. And like I said, for me, yeah. it was it was where I woke up to oh, there's this thing going on, man. There's you know. Yeah. yeah well, it's it's kind of like changing of the guard. Mm-hmm. You know, things are things are or the wind is blowing in a different direction, yeah. so to speak. And you I never think, uh, think, yeah, you never think the ultimate sin would be like that kind of album to be the harbinger, harbinger for for things. You yeah, know, because, yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. That well, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Harbinger is a good. That's a good. Yeah, that's a good term to use. It's um, you know, I, like when the when the orcs blow the horn yeah. before <laughs> the before the big war. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's kind of it's kind of like that. And like I said, the you know, the the difference from 85 to 86, you know, when when did this actually come out? Let's 
see if I can find it. 86. Yeah, there it is. Sure. The the difference the difference between 1985 and 1986 as far as the 80s metal thing goes, that's when to me that's when it went went mm-hmm. supernova at that point. That's when everything began to change. And we did. I think uh, Jake and I did a did an episode of the Music the Lifeblood podcast. Uh, it was probably a couple of years ago, but we did a um, just the big '80s metal discussion, and it was mostly us just laughing about groupies and stuff the whole time. But groupies, ew, still, and yeah, it was called, yeah, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the uh, the the sort of switch that 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 flicked at that mm-hmm. point, and Ultimate Sin is. Like you said, it's a it's a harbinger of of m- m- change, drastic yeah. change, that was happening at that time. So, good good bookmark album, good good sort of landmark album. Yeah, and I think if if you really want a good snapshot of what was going on that time, you got you got Ultimate Sin, you've got the self titled White Snake album, mm. for you know for sure, and uh, just b- being slightly biased, but kind of like you know makes sense to say too, even Kiss Crazy Nights, and you know. And Bon Jovi Slippery When Wet, like all yeah. that shit right there kind of yeah. runs the gamut from, you know. And then I remember when I was a kid, like there was a somebody spray painted on the overpass um, by my hometown, Aussie, Aussie Rules or Aussie is God or something like that, right? <laughs> and so I think that with, with Aussie, he was, even though he did like, you know, Ultimate Sin and, and all those solo albums up, or I mean, before Ultimate Sin, he was a classic rock, right? It was more of a classic rock kind of thing still, sure, even sure. though he had Randy Rose's up. And I think where Ultimate Sin happened was that's when he kind of became a metal guy. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, even though it's kind of, you know, glam, glammy and, you know, a little bit more watered down compar- in comparison. Um, but that's when he was, you know, he was like, OK, Ozzy says this is cool. We need we, we must listen to Ozzy. You know what yeah. I mean? Well, I think I think just just like as a baseline comparison, the song, The Ultimate Sin Mm-hmm. Uh, ultimate sin i think when you stand it next to let's say just crazy train that's the big one mm-hmm. ultimate sin is clearly a heavier song yeah crazy train is even though randy's doing some real shredding sure you know, that's that's one of the things i like about ultimate sin that era of music specifically i like those kinds of albums that blend uh heaviness better with the sort of window dressing of the 80s metal stuff that was happening. That's why I like Invasion of Your Privacy by Rat. Mm-hmm. Or that's that's why I like, you know, Creatures of the Night by Kiss more than, let's say, Asylum by Kiss. Yeah. You know, I like the, or Shout at the Devil Motley Crew would be a really good example too. Well, they were okay. dangerous. There was a layer of danger with that uh, yeah. aesthetic. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, with Motley Crue, especially because you can mm-hmm. tack that right onto the satanic panic yeah, conversation, yeah. that sort of thing. It's um, it just because of that social that that sort of sociological conflagration, that cloud of Satanism, you know, thing that mm-hmm. was hovering above everybody's heads for a little while. That it it gives it out, or at the time, it gave Motley Crue that sort of punch behind yeah. what they were doing it gave them the the sort of the scare that the parents would get from it that sort of thing i remember i remember looking at shout at the devil in my brother's bedroom when i was a kid and being like that's whoa you know what well, i mean i remember <laughs> thinking yeah like I, I saw like uh i had a cousin that had the shout of the devil album cover and stuff and then and then uh um and then seeing like motley crew smoking in the boys room and um home sweet home and thinking to myself you know, they still did, the, they still had the pentagram and shit, right? So I'm sitting here going, this is a band 
that does all the shit you're not supposed to do. Mm. So let's just fucking throw Satanism in there too. You know what I mean? Let's right. just throw Satan on it. Well, like we, I did the, I mean, we would probably, we ought to wrap this up, but sure, a, sure. Good, a good sort of, a good sort of way to end is that in the beginning, good always overpowered the evils of all man's sins. But in time, the nations grew weak and our cities fell to slums in the dust of hell lurks the blackest of hate. He which you fear awaits you. So come now, children of the beast, be strong and shout at the devil. It's, I mean, it's the condensed version of it, but they're literally, yeah. they literally say at the beginning of the album, we're yeah. fighting against the devil, that sort of thing. And yeah. still, you get that sort of metal pinned on their chest. Mm -hmm. it, it's just, what? It's, that, <laughs> and it's funny how that happens nowadays, too. You know what I'm saying? People just like, you know, they, they, see, a, they see a thing. You know, people wouldn't know the difference between you know, the, the, the singer from Motionless and White and, you know, Gaul from Gorgoroth. You know, they're, they're two, two guys <laughs> at, that are... Yeah, I get, yeah, I get what they're, you're they're, at, like a, at, like a popular, like, yeah, a, like they're, at they're, a mainstream sort of thought yeah. level. Yeah. They're, paint, yeah, they're painted, you know, they got fucking face paint and they're dark and evil, <laughs> but, like, they're going to assume that fucking Motionless and White sounds like Gorgoroth, you know? Right, and so yes. and, yep. But they're not going to look any further past that. They're yeah. not going to fucking listen to Motionless or Gorgoroth, you know? The, uh, the the satanic panic might be uh that might be a good starting point for the next episode. Let's do it, man. I mean, yeah. I, I, I'd love to dig into that. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we'll, get to, we'll talk about King Diamond. So, Ooh, dude, yes, his, his, uh, and we can maybe we can uh, we can talk about his his new uh, uh lot live multi angle awesome DVD that's coming out. Oh yeah, I saw I saw an ad for that the other day. It looks killer. Dude, I can't wait. Absolutely killer. So yeah. Probably we'll probably end up inevitably talking about how much more I like Merciful Fate than I do King Diamond. So and how much I agree with you. I, I've got to, <laughs> right. Yeah. You put a pin right, in that so, motherfucker right there. So, so <laughs> there you go. Stay tuned for the next episode. We're gonna we're gonna start at the the Satanic Panic. So Jonah. all right, that's it. Uh, go listen to the Ultimate Sin. I will. All right. That's another episode of Music the Lifebloods Conversations from the Pit Rapping. Music the Lifebloods, something old, something new. What are you listening to?